Hey, family! The end of October is coming in hot. Figuratively, at least. <laughs> it's starting to get a bit brisk outside around these parts. But we've had birthdays, fall parties, dairy farm visits. And you know what? We still have so much more in just even the next three days. But hey, I love that I can slow my roll for a minute here and take some time to gather with the OCD family community. So let's get to it, fam, because I can't wait for you to hear more. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent. And let me be the first to say, welcome to the family. The OCD family, that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. So we went to a dairy farm within this last week, and I mean, that just sounds so Midwest, doesn't it? I mean, I think people probably imagine farmland and that sort of thing when thinking of the Midwest, but I have to say, I had never, ever visited a dairy farm, having grown up mostly in the Midwest, until just a few years ago with my littles. But the dairy farm was absolutely lovely and got together with dear friends and engage in a lot of fall activities, including, <laughs> isn't this on everybody's fall activity list? Eh, it might be here in this community, including fighting with OCD. So my son, Jack, who has been on the podcast before, when we first got there, he climbed tentatively. The man is cautious, <laughs> halfway up a, a hay pyramid of sorts. I don't know if that's what they call it, but that's what it was, in my opinion, before cautiously, and I mean cautiously, making a trip back down. And I turned to Patrick and I said, I think OCD is here. <laughs> you know, I think OCD is getting loud over there. And so when he walked back to me, I wondered, as I often wonder things out loud for my children to process with me, I wondered if OCD was getting bossy in the middle of, of this fun day, and he agreed that it was. And so he went back up, and he stood at the top, and he waved at us, and he waved at the loser that is OCD as he fought back that fear. And you know what? Through the rest of the day, he had some wins and some losses in terms of OCD getting bossy with him and whether he was able to resist his compulsions or not. But ultimately, he was able to stick with all the things we did, no matter how distressed he got. And we still had a great time. And in talking about it, as we continue to kind of talk about all the fun things going on this week, he's still glad that we went. The distressing moments didn't outweigh the overall good of living our lives and learning a lot about cows. <laughs> we still had fun. And I like to make it clear, too, like the loss wasn't that OCD showed up or that he got distressed. The loss is when we get stuck in a compulsion loop to try and deal with that. And so he did get a little stuck, but fortunately we were there to battle with him and engage with him in the response prevention. And overall, it was a really great time. 
I share this, though, because, first of all, hopefully you know me enough by now to know that I, I do like to keep it real. But also, me, an OCD specialist, the mental health correspondent here for the OCD Family Podcast, a person with lived experience, parent to someone with experience, possibly a spouse, though he still claims, Patrick still claims, he's <laughs> leaning toward probably not OCD, you know, probably probably not, which is totally fine, and it's his choice. And I'm an adult child of loved ones, plural, with OCD. So sometimes even we have some wins and some losses, and that's okay. The goal isn't to be perfect, but to always be learning and adapting as necessary when it comes to the monster that is OCD. And I personally like that sometimes it doesn't go perfect because it shows that I'm not so focused always on OCD but I get to just live our lives. And sometimes it catches us off guard. And so sometimes we react. Sometimes compulsions start before we notice them. So we had some wins. We had some losses. And that's okay. The goal, again, is not to be perfect. And I have to say, I was super proud of Jack for bossing back his OCD. And I was also proud of my husband, Patrick, who held a caterpillar, which later bubbled up some intrusive thoughts about his potential for catching a deadly disease triggered by none other than you named it, caterpillars. But Patrick called it out as an intrusive thought before I, he, he came in and said, I had an intrusive thought about <laughs> this illness and just put it out there. And I'm like, uh-huh. Uh, okay. And then we moved on. He could, he could see it for what it was. And we lived our lives. Holla! <laughs> but today we're going to be talking more about and zooming into what to do when adult children are suffering with OCD. Now, you may come across this as a spouse, certainly. But for adult parents that in many ways feel stuck or unable to, quote-unquote, move on, this can be particularly tricky and exhausting. There's a lot of support for parents of younger children and great resources in family treatment. But what about when that child becomes a legal adult and now they are in charge and they have the right to block you from participating in treatment, let alone learning about how they're doing, how to support progress, etc. And that's granting that these adult children are even willing to participate in treatment. So what are families, particularly parents of adult children, to do? And how do we account for the vast needs that evidence themselves within this specific population? When I was in Denver this past summer for the in-person IOCD conference, I had the loveliest coffee break with a couple who was there eager and longing for support and insight into helping their 40-something adult child who was totally debilitated by his OCD. The father was immunocompromised during a high-risk alert for COVID but he came out anyway because he needed to know, what can I do? And though they were glad they came, their sharing is something that has had me thinking about it since. They talked about, well, they were so appreciative of the programming, a lot of the other parents they had met had different needs and concerns from their own. And so based on who gets the mic or what gets shared and how much time there is or isn't, there was a real struggle to capture all the great needs within this population. So what can we do about that? And how can we get help we need or know where to look to be able to get more help if we are parents to adult children suffering from OCD? Well, luckily, luckily, I have OCD expert Ben Eckstein with me today to talk about just that. 
So welcome back. And today we have a very special guest, Ben Eckstein, a licensed clinical social worker and a therapist specializing in the treatment of OCD and anxiety disorders. He's the founder and director of Bull City Anxiety in Durham, North Carolina. And before starting his practice, Ben was trained at McLean Hospital OCD Institute in Boston. We've talked about McLean a little bit because they have some facilities across the U.S. He currently serves on the board for OCD North Carolina, and he's going to be releasing his first book, which is very exciting. What to do instead of worrying. That's going to come out in 2023. If you've got the answer to that, Ben, maybe we should start <laughs> there. <laughs> it's a complicated one, so I had to write an entire book about it. An oh. entire book answer. <laughs> yes. Okay. So we can we can manage our expectations there. But welcome <laughs> to you, Ben. We are so grateful to have you on the podcast today and welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Absolutely. So one of the reasons that we are syncing up today, and I'm really excited about this, is we are going to talk about when adult children, and so really we're thinking, you know, 18 and up, but we could be going into 40s, 50s, even 60s, adult children that are suffering with OCD and probably have been for a vast majority of their life. And really wanting to zoom into this population because I think there is a range of experience, especially from a parent perspective, a sibling perspective, and other loved ones in terms of how to engage, how to interact when someone has a debilitating mental illness well into adulthood. And it can be such a range that sometimes when we find resources, or if we find resources, it's kind of like that unicorn moment if it kind of fits our circumstances. So we're going to be talking broadly, but also kind of looking in deeper in certain areas about adult children when they are suffering from OCD and really support for you loved ones that are in the trenches and have been for decades sometimes. Decades. And so I am really excited because Ben, he has really worked a lot with the adult population and would love to hear more about kind of your history and getting involved with adults suffering from OCD and not just, you know, adult clients, but working with parents and families around that. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I kind of stumbled into this niche a little bit, and I, I think that is also true of how I stumbled upon OCD and ERP just in general. And I remember when I first happened upon McLean and the OCD Institute, I was really drawn to it because I, it felt like it was almost like discovering like, you know, that unsigned band that's like amazing and nobody knows about, right? Like that it felt like there's this treatment out there. There are all these people who are suffering. And if we can just bring that treatment to those people, it will make things so much better, right? That there's this kind of untapped resource. There's kind of an underserved population Absolutely. within the OCD community. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think as I learned ERP and found that there's actually this really effective treatment model that we can use. And I started kind of digging into it more. You know, I, I, I think what I really found was this underserved population within the underserved population of those parents of adult children. Mm -hmm. You know, so I, I think a lot of the resources out there for parents are largely geared towards young kids, you know, that it, it 
there, I think there is a lot of support if you know where to find it for parents of young kids talking about accommodation and finding pediatric OCD specialists. And, you know, I think that there, there's a lot there Mm -hmm. and then those kids get older and the resources dry up a bit. Um, you know, I think the shift towards, Hey, this, this person is now just responsible for their own treatment. You know, the parents are kind of doubled to the side and, you know, they're, they're just not really as involved in a lot of circumstances, but it often leaves them feeling kind of helpless, you know, that they're, they're not as involved in treatment. It feels like they don't have the same leverage, the same ability to kind of have an impact. And so, yeah, I think it is a really important niche to focus on and to give support to. I started running a support group for parents of adult children with OCD mm-hmm. at the annual IOCDF conference, I don't know, maybe seven or eight years ago, something like that. And yeah, I was just really, really struck by how much of a need there was. I I remember when I got tasked with running this group, my first thought was like, I don't think anyone's going to show up. You know, it's so, it's so specific, you know, what are the chances that there are actually people who want support for this thing? Because it is such a niche. Mm-hmm. And then I remember even that first year that I did it, we had to, it was one of those rooms where they have those like dividers separating the room mm-hmm. and they had to open up the divider to make more space. And they had to bring in more chairs because there were just so many people who wanted support. And it has been that way every year. There are tons of people there and they are all really desperate in some ways for somebody who gets it, other people who understand that experience, because I think it can be pretty isolating. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, ultimately, and and Ben, you and I are both parents, so we have this idea of we have this kind of pivotal time during our children's childhood to help raise them and launch them and they can go be their own people. And certainly children with OCD can go and do that and get married and have jobs and be successful and have all sorts of things happening for them. But that doesn't mean the parent who has been in the trenches for so long isn't still impacted or worried or concerned. And, you know, that's on one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, well, actually, I don't know. We got like a triangle. I'm going to make a triangle instead of like... (laughs) Because we have the people that didn't know it was OCD that figure it out well into adulthood. And the parents are like, oh, and maybe they're engaging to learn more and maybe they're not. And then we have the other end where you might have someone that is going to need long-term assistance because the level of intrusiveness and just how debilitating their illnesses really keeps them from being able to function independently. So we have parents that have kids that, yeah, we struggled with OCD. I'm concerned about this. I see some kind of warning signs in my grandkids or whatever. All the way over to we have, they live with us, but we have to kind of have respite and we're thinking about hiring somebody to come in and take some shifts. So there is a very, very broad spectrum when we're talking about being parents to adult children. Can you talk to us a little bit more about, and it may echo some similar things, but kind of what you were finding when you started having these conversations in in these larger than anticipated but much needed groups? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you mentioned the spectrum because I I guess I sometimes think about it as further complicated, maybe not even a spectrum or a triangle, but I think a few different spectrums where like 
Mm-hmm. I, so some of these, even though it's, it is this really specific group, I think there are also these subgroups within it. And so I, I think one of those divides that I notice is that I think those folks who have adult children with OCD, some of those children are seeking out help. Mm-hmm. They're, wanting, they're wanting to get better. They're trying to engage in treatment. Yeah. But it's hard. It's a slog. OCD is really severe and they're still kind of struggling with it. Um, they're putting in that good faith effort to, to try to get better. And then I think on the other side of that spectrum, I think are those folks who are not, not doing treatment, who have decided, hey, this is not for me. It's, it's not going to work. I don't want to do it. I've tried it and it didn't work. Uh, yeah, I don't mean to vilify that. You know, I think a lot of people get to that point because they have had bad experiences. They have done treatment that hasn't worked. And so, yeah, I, I, I get why someone might, might arrive at that place. But I think as parents, I think those are two very different experiences. Mm-hmm. You know, how do I support this person who is going through the treatment and trying to make it work? How do I collaborate with them to remove some of that accommodation and to try to help them through treatment mm-hmm. versus that parent who has a kid where they're, they're not doing it and they have, the parent has to figure out what to do with that. Um, right. And there's an, there's an issue, too, on capacity of like uh, they may be able to do more than we've given them credit for, but not wanting to put so much you know, in terms of taking out and scaling back accommodation, putting so much on them that they're really not capable of that. And what's going to happen? Are they going to be safe? Because I think many of these parents have been through a number of things like suicide attempts or at least some, you know, extreme ideation, not all, but sometimes it's, you know, it's just a reality of, of anyone struggling and suffering that much with a mental illness or even physical illness. I mean, it doesn't even have to just stop there. But yeah, I, I, I would imagine it, it can be hard to know, like, to what degree can I scale back, whether they're willing to engage or not. And again, more subgroups then we we've popcorn yep. more subgroups in there right yeah it's just uh, you know and forget about ocd for a minute I, I think it's a challenging thing just as a parent for anyone right like that i you know babies come out and we do everything for them right mm-hmm. and if they cry our job as a parent is to figure out what's wrong you know if they're crying we feed them they need to sleep they have a dirty diaper whatever right like that there are with babies there are really three options dirty diaper they're hungry or they're tired mm-hmm. but then they get much more complicated they have a lot more needs there are a lot more things that could be wrong and then we also have to start navigating you know do i just jump to the rescue every time do i help them to sit with some of that distress do i help them to learn how to do it on their own and so i think the reality of parenting is there is this very gradual removal of accommodation and support. And I think with OCD, we often talk about accommodation as if it's this thing that's always really bad. Right. And, it, and it, in the case of OCD, yeah, accommodation is unhelpful. It's it, tricky. I guess it is bad, but helping your kid is not bad. Supporting your kid is not bad. Right. And so, yeah, I think we have to figure out where is this line? You know, where does that helping start becoming problematic? And how do we not only remove the accommodation, but help to support them and encourage them, right? Like that I think we want to do it in ways where they will actually be successful. You know, so I think yeah. remove the accommodation when it just sets someone up to fail, that's not really helpful. Right. And you know, it, it is interesting. As you were saying that, I was thinking accommodation really has taken on kind of a pejorative meaning. 
But if you think about it, like if you have gone through an IEP with a kid at school, an individualized education plan, and I'm not sure what that would be referenced to in other countries, but here in the U.S., if you're struggling and you don't fit this very standardized neurotypical mold for any given reason, it could be a medical reason, it could be a learning disability, it could be emotionally based, whatnot. But you can get accommodations, and this is a good thing, right, because this actually helps kids access the academic curriculum. It helps them access the goal. And in school, the goal is going to be academics. But yes, when we when we think about it in terms of OCD, often accommodation starts to be that extra that we do as loved ones, usually out of a place of love and support, and it snowballs gradually or sometimes very quickly, depending on what we're talking about, where you wouldn't necessarily do that for someone else, but you're doing it to keep the peace, to lower anxiety, to help at least kind of to choose a battle. And sometimes I've talked with, you know, some other people on the podcast about how sometimes you have to choose your battles. It's not going to go perfectly every time I'm a parent, real life. Sometimes you just got to get out the door. Come hell or high water, you're getting out the door. So I don't care. Grab your shoes. I grab your shoes. (laughs) I'm going to carry you. You know, even if this doesn't help OCD or it doesn't help anything, we've got to do this thing. We're going now. But accommodation certainly can become a lifestyle. It can become really deeply ingrained to the point of your relationship feels kind of defined by these, you know, some may say nurturing characteristics. And I think often their aim is really good. But accommodation then now gets this kind of really negative connotation. And, you know, it's it's tricky, but it is definitely something important for us to talk about. Another thing that kind of bubbled up for me, too, is when you said, you know, scaling back from mental health, I started thinking about, you know, marketing and ad targeting and how we're kind of split up into these demographic groups for a reason, right? You know, your 18 and under crowd is going to like something different than your 18 to 24, than your 25 to 34, than your... And and even then, we're going to have a lot of disparity within those groups. But still, we recognize we need to cut this up into chunks. And sometimes we have, you know, this resource for OCD or we have this resource for anxiety or this resource for depression, and it doesn't get all sliced and diced up into these demographics. But the reality is we don't all fit in that same mold. So I think it makes a lot, a lot of sense when you're saying uh, there's, I mean, we've got like popcorn of subtypes here that are Mm -hmm. just really bubbling up, but we kind of have parents of young children or or minors kind of covered, not to say it's not hard, but we've got We've got resources. And so coming to adults, it gets tricky because there there is such a variance and need. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think one of those things that I think is often really hard for parents of adult children is they just they don't have someone to walk them through it. You know, so I think for younger kids, parents are generally the ones who are seeking out treatment. Mm-hmm. They're involved in treatment. They have a therapist there to say, hey. Here are all the places where you're accommodating. Here's what we'll work on now. Here's how we'll build up support of your kid, right? Like they have kind of a guide to get through it. Mm -hmm. But as adults, again, the parents get kind of pushed to the side. That kid may not go to treatment at all. Or if Mm -hmm. they do go to treatment, the parents may have no idea what's going on there. They might not be involved in it. They might not be given direction. And so I think it leaves them to make a lot of those choices on their own to figure out where is that balance around accommodation? Is it reasonable to expect this of my kid or is it 
asking too much, right? Like that they, they're really kind of feeling around in the dark on their own a lot of the time because they're not able to be involved because HIPAA, right? There are, there are privacy concerns that therapists can't just reach out to the parents unless the person in treatment really wants them to be involved. Right. So yeah, I think it's harder. And, you know, again, a lot of the things that they need to do may be the same. They may need to work on a limiting accommodation, but they don't have that same guide to kind of pull them through it. Yeah. And the impact kind of that, I hesitate to say power differential, but you know, the the authority structure in terms yeah. of when they're living under your roof, and maybe they are, they still are, but as a child, you have a little more say. You have their medical and educational rights. You get to you have physical custody of them. You have you have that. When they're an adult, even something where you could take them to the doctor if they were really cycling and really needed medical support. Once they're eighteen, that is their choice, and sometimes they will not. Absolutely not choose that as the choice. Sometimes they will. And so it gets very, very tricky. There's also people that have never been involved in the mental health system that wouldn't even know they need a release of information. They don't know what HIPAA is other than people say, do you want to copy a stack of words that makes no sense to you when you walk in? And they're like, no, I'm yeah. good. I'll just sign this copy that I, yeah. I need it. <laughs> You know, or they get it sent on an email and it's like the terms and conditions. Does anybody, I don't know, like I have iTunes, we use a lot of Apple products. Anytime they update and you have to read through the thing, does, do people read through that? I mean, some people might. I don't, I just click like go on because I want to be able to get to my song yeah. or whatever. So yeah. it's a thing. Yeah. When I, I, my first thought was like, yeah, of course not. I, I don't know. I have more important things I want to do with my life. I would don't want to spend my time reading the terms and conditions, certainly for the random Apple update or whatever. Right. But I, it's, I guess that's, at least for me, I think feels like a more, I feel pretty confident in that, that decision. Yeah. Um, I think that is often the same choice that parents are put in. It's like, hey, like, do I want to take the quicker, easier way through this? Or do I want to dig in and do the harder stuff? And yeah, it's not an easy choice. Yeah. And with something like HIPAA documents, it's just like, we don't, you know, you're kind of in survival mode. You just got into this practitioner or this specialist or this medical provider. You're like, just get, get me in so I can talk to the person. Right. Yep. And they don't even necessarily understand what they're kind of flying through. And so that even can be hard if you're new to the medical system. If you're not, you could like be like, yeah, no, I've paper mache enough things with the old coffees. <laughs> We're good. <laughs> All right. So moving into there's definitely a spectrum. Accommodation can look very different, but parents also have a lot less of, you know, authority to really participate without a signed permission slip <laughs> from yeah. their kid now. this It's a really a, a flip. You know, I would love to kind of look into what, how does accommodation then maybe look different in adult children. And it's still a very important thing for us to look at. But again, and noting it's a little popcorn spectrum of things here. Can you give us some idea on what that means even? Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the accommodation is usually pretty consistent, but what it looks like can kind of shift. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think 
you know, my kids are pretty young. So the fact that I buy their groceries and their clothes, right? Like that's not accommodation. That's just me parenting a young kid. Mm -hmm. But there is some point where those things might be a comedy. You know, it depends on the person's situation. But, you know, I, I think as parents continue to do these sort of activities of daily living, they're taking care of whether the bills or the laundry or, you know, buying the groceries, right? Like all of those things that are required just to facilitate living a smooth life where your needs are attended to, those things become accommodating. And so, yeah, I, I think it just the you know, the content might shift a little bit, but the idea is still the same. I think where it gets tricky for a lot of parents is figuring out how do I remove some of those things? Mm -hmm. You know, so if this person is not working, mm -hmm. what is my expectation for their finances? If I stop buying them groceries or if I stop paying for their phone bill, what's actually going to happen? And so I think the reality is yeah, they won't have a working phone anymore mm -hmm. or they won't have groceries to eat, right? That something will have to change in order for that to be okay. And so, yeah, I, I think parents often get stuck when the consequences of not accommodating start to look a little bit more dire. You know, when right. we're talking about young kids, the consequences of not accommodating are usually that kid's going to be really anxious. They're going to be really distressed. It's going to be hard. But I think when we start talking about not accommodating with adults, now we're talking about, hey, they might not be able to pay their bills. They might not have a place to stay, right? Like it, it starts to become this much more impactful decision, which I think gets really hard for parents. And I, this is a question that I hear, I think every year at that support group is, do you throw your kid out? Like this is a kid who's suffering from a mental illness. It, do you actually let them be out on the street to be in a, a homeless shelter? Like, is that an acceptable choice to make? And I'll say every year, people are really divided on that question. I think sometimes it's necessary, you know, if that kid is being violent in the home, you know, sometimes there are circumstances where you say, yeah, you absolutely cannot be in the home. But I think for those, you know, I think especially if they're, they're working on it, they're trying to get better. Do we really want to impose that kind of consequence? And so, yeah, it's, and I, I don't profess to have the answer other than to say it's a painstaking process to try to figure out what is actually going to be in the best interest of this person. Yeah, you know, I think I think loved ones fall into similar predicaments when their loved one has, say, an addiction issue or, you know, there can be a myriad of different things going on. And this isn't going to make it easy because we would all like a really concrete answer, like what is the way to go about this? And 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 again, empathizing that, you know, your child didn't just wake up this day having this struggle. You've probably been dealing with it for 10, 15 years, maybe, depending on the age of the child. It could be 30 years. So looking at, you know, they don't even know how to boil water. How are they going to get a job? How are they going to be able to take care of themselves? But I wonder even if, and this isn't like a quick easy answer, but kind of looking, kind of taking a step back and taking a functional look at, you know, what is it benefiting them to stay? Like, what is the benefit? You know, am I benefiting their treatment ultimately or not? And I think that's going to vary. It's not always the same per family. We have different situations going on. We have different ways that the sufferers may be utilizing those resources and different levels of engagement. And I think there's not an easy, quick answer. It does not feel good to play trial and error with this, but parenting is trial and error. You know, from the moment they're born, 
if you want to adopt a dog, they're like, we're going to come do a home study. <laughs> but you yeah. can have a baby and not know a thing. And they're like, yeah, as long as they're buckled in a car seat on the way yeah. out, that's all that matters. <laughs> I mean, so it is it, it, a lot of parenting is trial and error. And it feels very grave when the, the factors around their livelihood, their basic needs get tied into it. It feels like if I don't supply this housing, they're going to be on the street. What if they get killed? What if they do something stupid? What if they, they're a victim of something? You know, could I live with myself? But we also have to remember where the responsibility is. Like ultimately as parents, we would love in some ways, but thank goodness in other ways that we're not responsible for all the things that our kids do. We just have to try and provide that scaffolding the best we know how. Ultimately, what they choose to do with that mental illness or not, they have some personal responsibility there as well. So, yeah, I mean, I would imagine it is divided and hard. Yeah. I think another one of those questions that I get every year is sort of, you know, how do I get my kid to do treatment, right? Like, how, how do I let's say make them? But yeah, how do I get them to make a different choice here? Yeah. And I have the most unsatisfying answer, which is you can't, you can't make somebody else do things. That's not how this works. I think your job as a parent is to create an environment that's conducive to them getting better, right? It's sort of like you don't make the plant grow. You just supply, you know, the soil and the water and whatever. Access um, to sunlight and what they, what they do yeah. with it. Yeah. So yeah, you as a parent, you can control all of those pieces around them, but you can't control the person. And so, yeah, they're going to do whatever they need to do. And you're left with these choices about, you know, what is the best environment? How do I make choices around this person that will be conducive to them getting better, whether that's giving them opportunities to learn that they're capable of experiencing distress or creating circumstances that promote motivation, that incentivize them to get better. You know, I think, I think this is one of, I think there are a few issues with accommodation. One of them is certainly that, you know, I think if parents are accommodating, they are depriving that person of the opportunity to learn what they're capable of. And in making it easier to have OCD, they're removing some of that incentive to get better. And, you know, I think OCD is miserable. It's an awful experience. And so I think for those folks who are not engaging in treatment, something pretty powerful is happening there, right? So they, they are in this much distress and yet it's not worthwhile for them to do treatment. That really tells us something. Something about that treatment must be really, really distressing or something about the current situation must not be incentivizing enough, right? That I, I think we all hit some tipping point where we take action. You know, I always mm -hmm. think about like procrastination, that kind of thing. So if, I, if I'm putting off writing that paper, that kind of thing, and then I get down to that deadline and then all of a sudden I click into gear and start working on it. Mm -hmm. The incentives have changed, right? Like there is some point where that time sensitivity has started to provide a bigger incentive for me. You know, when the paper's due two weeks from now, time sensitivity doesn't tip the scale towards action. But once you get into, all right, the paper's due in three hours. Now that time sensitivity is a much bigger incentive and it's going to tip the scale toward action. Mm -hmm. And I think with OCD, a similar thing is happening there. You know, that accommodation is tipping the scale away from action. You know, it's making it easier to have OCD. Not to say that it's ever easy. It is still miserable, but it's removing some of those natural consequences. You know, if you are not 
grocery shopping yourself, somebody else is doing it for you, you're still getting groceries, right? Like that you're you're not experiencing the natural consequence of right. oh, like I don't have the things that I need. If you're driving them to an appointment because they're terrified and they're convinced they can't drive and maybe f- afraid of trying to go via public transportation, whether it's social anxiety or contamination or whatever, then you're driving them, then they're getting there or they're going to hang out with you know, friends or whatnot, and you're driving them. And it's not to say, because I think as parents, I know certainly I can say for myself, it's not to say, it's not a shame on you. It's not a shame on you. You, you, you know, if anything, your loved one has been living in fear, in such extreme distress, the amount of cortisol, which is the stress hormone and the amount of just distress that they've felt. If anything, I think there is that parallel process that the parents start to feel in terms of Mm -hmm. if I didn't provide them a safe place to stay, I don't know that they would be able to survive. And it's also putting a lot of pressure on yourself that their survival is contingent on whether you're good enough and you catch things in real time. And that's just an impossible scenario. But also, it's it's not a shame on you. It's a, oh, you know, it's a pivot point, if anything, because it's I've been doing this because I love you and and not but and I can start doing this because I love you mm-hmm. and shifting. And it doesn't have to be in a 180 degree shift. We don't need to completely be going the other way. And that's often not realistic. But I will tell clients all the time, you know, real nerd here. But if you think of like an old school, like compass and protractor, if you can even remember, <laughs> sorry, where you put like the little yeah. pencil that looks like it's from like a categories box in the, yeah. in the, you know, compass or protractor. I don't even remember which one is which. But It's 360 degrees in a circle and even one degree of change. It doesn't feel like much at all right here at the epicenter of the distress. But we follow that array out. It is on a different trajectory forever. It is forever going to be shifted because of one degree. And you can't see that until you get way far out because it looks like the same line, right? But it's not. And so being able to even make those little shifts, if you're going to the conference, if you're finding this podcast, something tells me you're there, you know? And so if anything, a pat on the back of I love my child so much that I, well after they're an adult, I'm still trying to help. No shame in that. It's just new learning, new learning. Yeah. Yeah. And I I always... I, I agree 100%, you know, that I, I think accommodation is the norm, not the exception. You know, this is what parents do. And I think at the end of the day, I think these are really good parenting instincts. You know, that I think the fact that you care about your kid and want to help them, mm-hmm. you know, that is, that's what we do. Mm-hmm. You know, that we are, as I mentioned with the babies, right? Like we come out pretty helpless. We need parents to attend to us and help us and take care of us. So these are really good parenting instincts. They just don't work quite as well if you have a kid with OCD. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I think that's just sort of one of these things that we just have to kind of take note of is that, you know, and again, it's not that you should never help a kid who has OCD. That's certainly not true. It's just knowing, hey, this helping that I'm doing, if my kid has OCD, there's a greater likelihood that that helping may start to snowball into this other thing. 
Um, mm-hmm. So I, and I think that's true for all parents. I think about my morning this morning where my four-year-old didn't want to put on her shoes and I put them on her. I'd just be clear there. She didn't have to tie her shoes. They were Velcro shoes. Uh-huh. She was very, she's very capable of putting on her shoes, mm-hmm. but she was doing this half-hearted kind of thing where she was kind of trying to put her foot in and we needed to get out the door. I was like, all right, here's your shoe. Put it on. <laughs> so I, I did it for her. I feel fine about that. If my four-year-old is now 10 years old and can't put on her shoes, that's a problem, right? That at, at some point that would become an issue. And so I think it's just important to recognize the act of doing things for your kid. That, that's not inherently wrong or problematic. It, it's about the context and the function and like, has it become this bigger thing that's kind of snowballed and gotten out of control? I think most people flag accommodation, not because they make the perfect decision right in the moment. But because at some point they realize they've crossed the line, right? That we, I think so often you see that line once you're on the other side of it, you know, that it started to become a bigger issue and you have to kind of walk it back a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I I think that's, that's okay. I think that's that pivot that you described. It's saying, all right, this seemed to be helpful. Maybe it was helpful for a while. Maybe it, it, it was a reasonable thing to do, but for whatever reason, it stopped working and I'm going to approach it from a different angle. Yeah. And you know, Something that you and I were talking about before we started here, Ben, we were talking about some of the different challenges that parenting presents overall anyway. I have some special needs in some of my children. All of my children are neurodiverse in different ways. I don't like to classify neurodiversity as a special need because I think it's yeah. I think it's special. It's awesome. But yeah. I don't think it makes them better, worse, anything else and different. It's just they're, they have a unique way of processing things. But what I will say is there are some situations where we can look at other people and it's so easy. It's so easy with social media. It's so easy with, you know, groups or sports or extracurriculars to go out and go, you know, their kids just doing the thing and they're not even really trying as hard as I am. I'm trying really hard to provide all of this. And it's still it's kind of hit or miss at times or we're still not able to participate or I'll finally just kind of disenroll from the class or something because this is a waste. And we might say, you know what, like, absolutely, we know that some of our challenges as parents is a little harder than what the perceived normative, and I will say perceived because it's (laughs) what's actually the norm. I don't know. A lot of people just trying to show like they're living their best life and everybody's having their struggles behind the scene. But what I will say is, you know, in the same way that you've had to kind of step up in other ways and you know, like, hey, I'm already working hard. It can be pretty liberating and freeing as well, not only to scale back a little bit or make some of these little pivots going, this used to serve a really important function. Now I can see it might be accommodating or supporting the OCD over the person that I love. And so I can make that change. We might fear the distress they would experience. They're probably going to experience distress. And so will you, but you guys are strong and you can do this. You have been a parent for so long. You've got this. You've got this meltdown. At least you know this meltdown's coming. (laughs) That's kind of nice to have the the little kind of warning. But yeah, I mean, this it's going to be hard, but also there can be a lot of freedom and going, I've already done a lot of hard work and this can help me love my person more rather than helping their OCD continue to imprison my person more. 
and it's not all your responsibility, but that's what you can do from an environmental perspective. Right. Yeah. You know, I think, as we said, you know, when kids are young, you know, I think there is this certain amount of dependence on parents that is just inevitable. It's part of your role as a parent. And then as kids get older, I think that role does change. And so I think when accommodation shows up, I think it often makes it so that the parent is staying in this role where their kid is dependent on them, right? Because mm -hmm. that, that parent is responsible for managing the kid's distress, for taking care of whatever logistical things, right? Like that there remains this dependence. And I think what happens there is it essentially ends up so that the parent and the kid are not on the same team, right? Like the parent is this intermediary between the kid and OCD. And I think we really want to shift that so that parent and kid, and I'm talking about adult kids here, right? Like that mm -hmm. they're on the same team. OCD is on the other team, right? Like the parent isn't this intermediary trying to kind of mediate the effects of OCD or trying to moderate distress. Instead, yeah, the parent is there with the kid saying, hey, this is really, really hard. This is incredibly challenging, but I'm going to be with you. We're going to go through this distress together. I'll stand by you. I can can be here for support. But my job isn't to prevent distress necessarily. That's not really the role of, of a parent in that context. Right. And it's, you know, when you think of supporting your child, none of us sit there and go, yeah, I want to support my child by like really putting them in a tailspin. That would be great. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. nothing says support like, woo, there you go. But at the same yeah. time, you are not putting them in their tailspin. OCD is the one putting them in the tailspin. And both you and your loved one are strong cookies. You are yeah. strong cookies. You have not gotten to where you are today by not being a tough, tough person. And you're going to feel some distress. But you've been feeling distress probably for most of their life. Because you have been battling with them and with the OCD. And so it can be really, again, freeing to realize you it's not your job to be the intermediary. That though we can all get in dangerous situations, whether we're anxious or not, anxiety in and of itself is not dangerous. And ultimately... It can be what's most helpful for long-term reduction of anxiety to not intercede in that moment and go, okay, I'll just, I'll drive you or, okay, you know, I'll help pay the electric bill this month or, okay, we'll have, we'll have, you know, groceries delivered. Here's my credit card. You're on the account. Yeah. 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 I mean, and, and it's hard. They're going to, they are going to vocally, emotionally, maybe sometimes physically show you their distress. But again, yeah. it is, you've done what you can to provide a supportive environment and their behavior is ultimately on them. And our job isn't to prevent their behavior. Our job is to support them for what's healthiest, for what's going to be best for them overall. And sometimes that's them feeling really anxious in this moment. Yeah. I'm always a little surprised. I guess I shouldn't be surprised because it happens a lot, but I'm, I'm always a little surprised when people say like, oh, I don't, I don't think I can handle that anxiety. I don't think I'm capable of it. And I, I'm always surprised by it because these are people who are like battle tested, right? Like they have <laughs> dealt with a ton of anxiety. Like they are anxiety professionals. Yes. 
And I, you know, that, you know, that person who is living this charmed life without any, we all have some anxiety, but you know, the person who seems to have no anxiety, they're feeling just fine. Like that's the person I don't trust with anxiety, right? Like, like, I don't know if they're capable of it. They've never been put to the test, but for people who are struggling with this stuff, like they've been through it. I have no doubt in my mind that they will make it through Yeah, because anxiety is not actually dangerous for us, but I also because they've done it a million times before they do it every day. They're pros. Right. You know, it's it's one of those things like, I don't know if this will be clunky or not. I, I tend to just throw shit out. And if it sticks, there we go. That was meant to be. But I was just having this memory, as you were saying that, of my, you know, my middle child is very strong. I mean, he has like a six pack. Part of it's because he doesn't eat. And he's a picky eater. And so everything he eats goes immediately to sustaining life function. And so has no fat on his body. But what I will say is he's been my climber forever. And huh. when he was a when he was a baby, he started crawling at like four months. He started walking at eight. It was tough. Oh. He was a climber. And so I had some good friends that had some climbers, some like adamant climbers. But I reached out to one of them and I said, hey, I, I'm having a lot of problems because my son climbs so many things, but he doesn't have the awareness of what's dangerous or not. And I can't I have multiple kids that can't be on him all the time and it terrifies me and you know you're not supposed to you look over and see them scaling the fireplace you're supposed to be like oh yeah okay not today you're getting down you're not supposed to be like no right (laughs) something where they get totally shocked or could fall or that they start to see the pattern of the reaction and they learn oh that's kind of fun so i know how to get a reaction (laughs) but you're supposed to be calm and collected and go like oh yeah don't climb no worries no worries just gonna get you down because that's not what we do oh well you know and so it was really hard for me to be able to do that because there were so many safety concerns that would come up and ultimately what she told me one of the friends i reached out to she said She's not who I worry about when she's climbing. She climbs, and yes, I need to help kind of teach her the parameters and the boundaries or permission if there's at least supervision. But honestly, her core strength, her agility, all of that, like she is the last person I'm going to worry about climbing something. I may not like it. I may tell her to get down or there'll be a natural consequence if she does that because it could lead to an unsafe behavior. But in terms of her ability to survive that, she's good. She's better than I would be. But had her sister tried that, her sister's screwed. She's got the upper body strength of a fruit fly. So, you know, we, we're, we're really like looking at an ER trip there if it, if it happens. Yeah. And I thought, you know, that's such an interesting reframe because this thing that was really terrifying and scary, because it was so known and it was so exercised on a constant basis it actually was like you know what he is pretty safe and he's never fallen off of a platform or anything again we can still give boundaries on that but similarly within anxiety you guys have had like constant like iron man level training on dealing with anxiety day in day out for years so so it feels like i'm not going to be able to survive this probably because you're exhausted because you've been surviving it if anything you know how to survive this they know how to survive this and you guys have you've you've had the training that we wouldn't wish upon anybody but you have it and you have the ability to succeed and get through this even if it means you have distress as well and so yeah i mean it, it is it's interesting 
But yeah, a lot of these warriors and these supporters, warriors as well, have been in this fight for so long. That you guys, you guys are more equipped than you realize. You guys are strong. Your loved one is strong. They've survived in living hell for who knows how long. And they're still here. They're still fighting. They've got more in this fight than we realize. And so having that just really be a basis for like, oh, if anyone's got this, we've got this. We didn't want this to be the challenge. But you know what? It's what the challenge is. So here we are. And then we've done lots of things in life that have not been easy that we didn't want to do, but we've gotten through it. You can get through this too. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. So we've talked about how accommodation can reinforce that anxiety cycle. We've talked about how it's important that both you as the parent, but also in looking at your loved one, your child, they're capable of managing this distress. Absolutely. And you were speaking to that. And there are going to be true natural consequences if we if we don't pay our bills if we if we don't go to the grocery store and get food and so can you talk about how that cycle can kind of interfere sometimes with those true natural consequences and you know ultimately what our goal could be because i know it varies but our goal could be in kind of reframing that yeah so you know i, I think so if parents are accommodating they are stepping in in these moments with good intentions, they're trying to help out to smooth things over, to do it more quickly, to minimize distress. There's lots, lots of reasons why people do it. But sort of the unintended consequence of that is that the person with OCD misses this opportunity to learn that they're capable of tolerating distress. Mm -hmm. um, and then they also miss out on that natural consequence, right? That there is this sort of fail-safe thing that is protecting them from actually experiencing what happens, you know, what are, what are, what will happen if they truly avoid doing these things. And so, yeah, I think that puts parents in this position of trying to figure out how do I remove these things in a way that gives them those opportunities to learn and to figure out that they can do it on their own. And hopefully without experiencing those consequences, right? And so I, I think this is I think one of those sticking points that parents want to be able to remove accommodation while being assured that their child will rise to the occasion and do the things that they want them to do. And we can't actually be assured of that. You know, so I think this removal of accommodation, it is this sort of sink or swim kind of moment where we're saying, all right, here you go. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to take the training wheels off. I'm going to throw you in the pool. Like, we're just going to see what happens here. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they sink, sometimes they fall, right? Like that it, it doesn't always go well. Plan. <laughs> it doesn't always go well. And I think this is where we just want to be really intentional about how we're making those choices. You know, what what are we doing to set them up for success? You know, that I, I don't think we can ever be assured that they will always be successful. But I think if we're really intentional and thoughtful about it, I think we can do it in this more incremental way where we are providing them with the tools that they need so that they can swim or stay on the bike or whichever metaphor we want to use. So I guess what is sort of inherent in that is that we do have to be willing to take that risk. You know, then I think if parents say, hey, I will only do this once I am assured that everything will be okay, they won't ever do it. They, they can't have that. It's not an option. So we need to be willing to take some risks here. And I think when, you know, if parents are setting up some sort of 
contingency plan there, whether that's a contract or an agreement or whatever they're doing, you know, I think ideally, yes, they are communicating with their kid if they're saying, hey, a month from now, I am not going to pay for your phone bill anymore. I can help you figure out how to budget accordingly, how to make more money, how to whatever, right? Like that, I, I think you can support them in that. And again, I think the hope is that they will rise to the occasion. They may not. And so I think parents do need to be really thoughtful about figuring out what those consequences are so that they actually can follow through with them. And so I, I think we don't want to try to impose consequences and then be inconsistent with it. Right. That likely will not bode well over the long term. Right. We don't have to be perfect. You know, I, I, I do think that I know this is a, a place where I, as a parent, I I try to work on this, right? So I am I am a behavioral therapist and I have certainly approached these things from like, oh, you got to be really consistent. If we want to reinforce these different things, you got to have really consistent consequences or rewards or whatever. And I think I have had to learn when to say, you know what? I chose that hill to die on. And I see now that was a mistake. And I'm actually going to walk that one back because I shouldn't have, that, that was a bad call on my end, right? So I, I, I think there is room for us to be fallible to say, you know, hey, I just didn't assess this well and I can, you know, take a step back and reassess and come up with a better plan. I think that's totally fine. We are fallible. We make mistakes. I think what we don't want is just constantly bouncing around from, oh, here's the consequence. Never mind. It's good. It's this thing. And, you know, I think we don't want that just inconsistency as a pattern. But I think if we have moments where we reassess and make a different choice, that's totally fine. Right. There's a lot of room for us to be human. And if anything, I think parents are getting a taste, at least a microcosm of some of the distress the sufferer is going through when the stakes feel so high. Right. And so to yep. you, it might be just going and getting the produce yourself from the from the grocery store to them. It's, it might be contamination fear or what if I impulsively attack somebody or whatever. Mm -hmm. It feels so high. Similarly to if I don't buy them groceries, they're not going to have food. And if they can't even get to the grocery store, how are they going to work? And then they're not going to be able to eat and then they're not going to be able to live. Like that same kind of feeling and sensation is their constant. And so I think even having a conversation about that and go, I think I got caught in that too. I got mm -hmm. caught in this. I'm worried that this really catastrophic thing's going to happen. And you know what? I guess it could happen, but it also might not happen. And all I know is the only way we can learn that is if I'm not buying your groceries. And as scared as you are, I'm scared too. I, I'm scared that bad things could happen. And yet I'm going to lean into that. And so really realizing that you guys are in really a similar boat here and you're not kind of on these isolated islands alone trying to figure out how to get through this. Like you both are having an experience of the OCD, whether it's from your loved one, whether maybe you struggled as well. That's not uncommon that we might have multiple people struggling with OCD or because it's become such your fishbowl, it's become such your environment for so many years that trying to do something different, it just feels undoable. It feels un like we're going to be incapable of this. And you'd be surprised what all we're capable of. Men have walked on the moon, now women too, and, and we've created rockets that can shoot and land again. There's cures for certain diseases that used to wipe out entire populations. We're capable of amazing things. 
And and so those brains that give us those awesome ideas can also be pretty scary. And, you know, we're capable of a lot. And so it doesn't mean we're always going to succeed. And it doesn't mean we should assure success for ourselves or for the others. You know what? It might not go well. Yep. In fact, it probably it probably won't the first time. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Okay. Okay. But does that mean that this is a fail? That we need to switch plans? No. And I think that consistent CPs that you're talking to is just so important because otherwise the brain learns. If I kind of stay at this long enough, it'll return to what I know, which is distressing, but familiar. And I would prefer that. <laughs> and it will peck for that. It'll keep trying to reaccess that. So yeah, I mean, it doesn't have to be perfect every time. But if our overall, our goal is to be consistent with that messaging, that's a great goal. It is. And it is inevitably bumpy. This stuff is hard. And I, I don't think there is any amount of planning or preparation or perfect decision making that will eliminate the bumpiness of this. Mm -hmm. It's just that's inherently part of the process. I do. I think about this experience that used to happen a lot when I worked at McLean. So it's like presidential OCD program. And right off the bat, we would set this expectation like we do not accommodate. We are not reassuring you, right? Like that our entire mission here is to create an environment that's conducive to you getting better. And you're going to do exposure and you're going to have this team of people around you supporting you. But every single thing that we are, that we do here is going to be in the interest of you getting better. And really often parents would, they would drop off their kids. And again, the adult kid, not, not kids, but adult children. Sure. And they would say things like, oh, they're not, they're not able, they can't do that. They're not like, they're never going to be able to tolerate that. They're going to be too distressed. They're going to be suicidal. They're like, it's, there's no way they can do that. And they would always be shocked when they would come and those kids are perfectly capable of doing it. And they did have distress. Sometimes they did get suicidal, but again, they had people around them to support them. So those, those feelings, that distress there's a team of people there to help them get through it and come out on the other end of it without reinforcing their OCD. And so I, I think it is very possible to do this stuff. And I think that idea that they're not capable of it, I think it's not really accurate. I think a lot of what happened at McLean that was different is there were these different expectations right off the bat. And I was not their parent. I was the therapist, right? So there, there are, you know, when somebody seeks reassurance from me and I say, no, I think that's reassurance. I'm not going to answer that question. Mm -hmm. They expect that answer from me and they're not hurt by it, right? That it's, it's predictable. Of course I would do that. That's my job. Right. But they have different expectations of their parents. It sure. does get personal, right? That they, they feel like their parents have this obligation or responsibility to make them feel better, to make that distress go away. And so I think it does take more time and some more distress to change those dynamics at home. It, it's just, it's a different setup. And I think there are lots of things that I could get away with as a therapist at a treatment facility that parents can't always get away with at home. Right. But I think that's the thing is they can, they just have to change the dynamic. Um, mm. that it's, it's not that they, the kid can't tolerate distress or that they can't build a different way of supporting that kid. It's just, they haven't done it yet. Right. Yeah. And you're, you're strong and you can do that you can help create that different dynamic. And again, it can be a one degree pivot if that is all that you can do right now. But even that is going to set you on a different trajectory. I think another really good point in thinking about you talking about the hospital example 
is not only was there a team around the loved one, but there's also a team working together for the loved one. So had you been just been the only person dealing with, and it's not that you couldn't as one person, (laughs) but had you been one person, that would have been a lot harder. It would have been higher stress. And, you know, there are going to be times where you're going to need to consult. There's going to be times where you need to take a break. There's going to be times. And so, you know, you might be looking at a situation and going, I'm the only person for my loved one. Okay, maybe you're the only one you feel like that has influence or impact over your loved one and you've been their main source of support. But how can we look around the community, look around family, look around for support groups and go, how can we expand your network? Because if you didn't feel like I am just the only one, then you would also have a different level of oomph to be able to go into some of these highly distressing situations. And sometimes you'd be surprised on what the sufferer could kind of shift in that moment if they have one of those kind of light bulb moments. And I feel like as the brain starts to learn different responses, it becomes easier and easier for them to apply it across situations, whether it was a direct Mm -hmm. exposure or not, because the brain gets, oh, it's easier to do this. That was ultimately less distressing, even if the bad thing happened. And so really looking around and going, I need a team too, whether it's your own therapy, whether it's you know pickleball on Tuesday mornings at at the local rec center. Whether it's, you know, just getting together with other parents, IOCDF is a great resource, as we've heard Ben facilitates this group at the in-person conferences. Do they do something like that at the virtual conference, Ben, where people can get together? I know they have a general chat where people can chat. They do. So they, there's a, I think, I don't know if there's a liability reason for that. There's some, they don't call them support groups. I think they're community discussion groups. Ah. but. They are the, as far as I can tell, I think they are the same thing. They're supportive Um, in nature. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So yes, they do that for the online conference as well. And I will also here just put in a plug. There are a couple of women who are parents of adult children with OCD who started a virtual support group for parents of adult children with OCD. Oh, great. And that support group, I think I'm... I feel like I'm embellishing this, but I think I might even be understating it, actually. I think that support group has turned into seven or eight or nine support groups, something like that. They keep filling up and keep having demand for more. They constantly have a wait list. And yeah, there is just a huge, huge need for support. And I would just echo what you said. I think one of the best things that parents can do is to get support themselves. Also to make sure they're taking care of their own needs because it is so important to feel heard here. Yes, absolutely. So would you be able to send me over, maybe shoot me an email with information on that support group? Yeah, I I will. I would love to put on this episode's blog post, I usually put all the citations. I'm going to have information for where you can find Ben and more about the dynamic work he's doing. And I will put on there too information about the support group if you're interested in it. Great. Also, I will say, if I haven't made it clear uh, to this point, because I've said a lot, I can't always recall what I've said or not, but Ben is actually going to be presenting at the IOCDF virtual conference that is running November 4th through November 6th, and it's completely virtual. It's online. 
And these really started during COVID and think they're a fantastic opportunity, especially, you know, you could be anybody. You could be an OCD sufferer or an OCD-related disorder sufferer. You could be a loved one, spouse, parent, child. You could be a practitioner. You could be a researcher that is all up in grants and saying very fancy words that (laughs) I don't understand but would use in Scrabble in a second. And, you know, so, but you could be anybody. You could be a dietitian. You could be a doctor. You could be, you know, anybody that just even has an interest in learning more. But I think it's a great place as well as the in-person where you can actually kind of cry and hug and or, you know, fist bump, air air fist bump from a distance if we're still yeah, not that close with the germs. But what I would say is like, it's a great place to be able to get more education, more understanding on what's going on and to connect with other parents, other people that are just like, man, this is hard. And to be seen, it's, it's, it's indescribable when even if it doesn't feel like it solves an issue, just knowing you're not alone, knowing that somebody gets it, And they can say why that's hard. And then having somebody you can call and say, you know, even if you connect with them, you can call or email and go, oh, my goodness, I did this. And they're telling me they hate me and they're never going to see me again. And I feel awful. And for them to go stick with it. You've got it, Mary. I don't know. I'm throwing out Mary, but Mary, Mary, you've got it. You can do this. And she says, thanks, friend. You know, like that can be really helpful. Also, kind of speaking of those supporters, I was, you know, we were going to talk a little bit about space. And I know we've talked about space on the program a little bit. We had an episode um, with someone doing great work with space and telling us more about it. But uh, they had their kind of cheerleader supporters, too, built into that program so that mm-hmm. they could say, hey, it's a tough it's a tough moment here. I need support. I don't want to give in to the accommodation, but I'm really feeling pressured into it. And I'm having a hard time sitting with the distress. So Maybe you can, maybe this would be a good opportunity to toss a little bit more about space because space is often used with younger children, but can it be helpful even with adult children? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So space is an acronym for supportive parenting for anxious childhood emotions. And as you said, it was originally designed to be a treatment for younger children. And sort of the unique thing about space is that those children are actually not involved in treatment. So it is, it's a treatment model where the parents are actually the one receiving treatment. So they, there are a series of sort of modules that you go through and you essentially learn how to support your child differently. And so in space, they sort of define that as this combination of validation and confidence. So validation being, hey, I know this is really, really hard, but confidence being and I know you can do it. And so I think just before doing anything with accommodation, learning how to approach those moments where your child is distressed from a different angle, leaning into this sort of different way of supporting them. And then once you've established that, then there is this very systematic approach where you you do start removing accommodation behaviors, almost like a, an exposure hierarchy, right? Like you kind of do this inventory of all the different accommodation behaviors and then select behaviors, not necessarily based on what's the most difficult, but based on what will be the most effective, what makes sense, what will mm-hmm. provide the most benefit for the parents or the child. Mm-hmm. Um, so it doesn't need to be in that hierarchical kind of way, but you just pick these things and there's a whole kind of rollout as to kind of how you pitch that to the kid. Mm-hmm. And nothing is really expected of the kid, right? I, that kind of sink or swim thing that we were talking about. The whole idea here is 
they can do whatever they want. We're not asking them to do anything. They're not involved in treatment against their will. They're not, they don't need to do anything. It's up to the parents to figure out how they approach things differently. And what I think is really fascinating is the results that they've gotten in some of these trials are on par with what kids actually get when they go through ERP themselves. So it's pretty effective and it is being adapted for older children. They are specifically looking at more of that kind of failure to launch, you know, in your twenties kind of, kind of situation. But, you know, I, I think the big takeaway here is that, you know, I think this model can be effective anywhere where accommodation is happening, you know? And so I, I think with children accommodation, as I said, that's the norm, not the exception. Um, mm-hmm. Studies show something like 95% of parents of anxious children accommodate, right? So it's, it's really just this is what happens when you have an anxious kid. Mm-hmm. I think those numbers are, are probably lower for adults who are anxious or adults who have OCD. But if you do have somebody where accommodation is, is a big part of it, and you might imagine if you are part of that failure to launch category, chances are pretty good there's some accommodation happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, if accommodation is there, this model can also be applied. I will also put in a quick plug that the talk at the online conference will be me and these two women who developed a sport group and Ellie Leibowitz, who is the person who developed space. Um, oh, that's, yeah. look at you, Ben. That's <laughs> yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, I am. Well, I'll say I'm excited. I think it's really good. I think people will enjoy it. And yeah, I think it's obviously it's great hearing about space straight from the horse's mouth. You know, he is the person who developed it. And I think has a lot of really interesting things to say about it. Wow. That is, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. And, you know, I I love too that the parents will be there as well. And so you are putting this into practice. He came up with the research behind it and has put a lot of work into the evidence base, like making sure that this is a valid, reliable thing that is evidence based. It's going to make a difference and it has. And then these women, these women can just say, like, hey, this is where it's been harder. This is where it's been easier. But this is ultimately what our experience has been and to be an encouragement and support to everyone. And I love I love that about the OCD conferences is, again, it's just everybody together. We are all in it together. So that's really dynamic. And I, I love that because, you know, when you look at something like space, what's helpful about this is, you know, when we were talking about some of the subtypes before, the little popcorn categories of where we can kind of put different kind of groupings of adult children in terms of, you know, the kind of the support that they need. And it really is vastly different across the board. I love that space incorporates the you don't have to be compliant with treatment. And that's great if you are. And if you're not, there's still something that you can do as a parent in the same way that you felt like maybe I'm do I'm getting the groceries for them to try and help them. You can do this. And this will ultimately be more freeing for both of you, whether they want to be in the treatment or not. Because if we're a part of the system, if we stop playing that role in the system, it automatically is going to change the system, whether this, whether your loved one likes it or not, whether you like it or not, because it's going to feel different for you too and change is hard. But what I would say is, that is, that's kind of a huge piece and why I, I am sure that the research is showing similar outcomes for ERPs because we've learned when we reinforce some of those, whether it's giving assurance for accommodating 
we can be reinforcing that learning in the brain just as much as the person performing the compulsion. I think sometimes we can take that and feel like this ultra responsibility of what if I accidentally do that because am I making it worse? But what I would have to say to that is like, again, they're responsible for the choices they ultimately make. And the good news is it's not your job to be this perfect intermediary. You're just a, a support in the environment. If it if it doesn't go and you and you recognize that, then hey, that's learning for next time. We can use that mistake well and go, hey, that kind of flopped. Uh, good to know. Or we can talk it over with the therapist. We can talk it over with our support people. Call your mom if that's a good thing. <laughs> If that's a helpful ally in, in that. And yeah, and for parents that are maybe co-parenting with somebody that they really don't agree with the other person's parenting style, again, you're never going to be able to make them parent the way you want them to parent, but you can still parent in a way that changes the dynamic in your household. And so you absolutely have options there. And I think that's a, a really good reminder. So that's, that's really cool. So you're going to be at the OCD conference, the virtual conference through IOCDF. I believe you can sign up probably up until the time. And what's really cool is at the conference, you have something like 30 days after the conference has ended to be able to go back and listen to different talks. Now, during the actual conference, there's some live Q&A following different presentations. Those aren't recorded for privacy reasons and whatnot. But if you were like, I want to catch that for sure, go catch it. It's very reasonably priced for family members. I think it's $100 for family members or sufferers. If you happen to be a member of IOCDF, it's $85. But additionally, there's so many good things that would be helpful. Go to the one that you pick and go back and listen to the other ones when you have time. It's for 30 days you can access amazing levels of experts, whether it's people with lived experience, people that have been treating this, sometimes treating and lived experience, researchers, all of the above. So that's really cool. So you're going to be on that. I will have that information too on where you can find him. And I'll definitely put that on this episode as well. So, you know, this is this has been really, really helpful. I think an end kind of thought as we kind of wrap up today is I really appreciated your emphasis on you can't make the child do any one thing, right? You can't make them get better. And in a way that's really freeing, it is not all on you. But there are things that we can do. And this is how we got here in the first place because we love and care about them. We can. There are things we can do that are loving to help create an environment that is most conducive to successful, healthy management of OCD. And that's pretty inspiring. Yeah, I, I think something that I try to keep in mind is that, you know, OCD, it's like doing compulsions. This isn't bad. It's problematic, right? And so like, I, I think as you go through all the diagnostic criteria for OCD, you have obsessions, you have compulsions, and then you get to this other point, which is about disrupting functioning, right? Like that all of this stuff, it's only a problem if it's a problem, right? So like if it's getting in the way, then that's an issue. And I think it's a really important thing to keep in mind that none of these, the accommodation, doing compulsions, right? Like this, this isn't a moral issue. It's not inherently bad or wrong. It's problematic if it interferes with living your life the way that you want to. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's something that I really like about space is that it, it focuses on that 
functioning mm -hmm. piece, right? And I, I think when you look at the research around accommodation, it, it yeah, it, it makes symptoms worse, treatment outcomes are worse. But, you know, I think one of the, the places where I, I think it's the most insidious is that it disrupts functioning both for the individual and for the family. And so I think just saying, hey, rather than focusing on symptom reduction, rather than saying, hey, let's make the anxiety go away, we're just saying, hey, let's figure out how to not let this get in the way of your life anymore. Yeah. Um, so I think that is a place where parents can step in and say, yeah, I can't choose what you're going to do. I can't choose how distressed you get. But I do have a say in the disruption to my life and our collective lives. Yeah. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind because that's that's where you do have some power. Right, right. That's that's such a great point because if your life is centered around making sure Paul, you know, is stable enough to get through the week and then taking a week by week by week and now it's years by years by years, you yeah. know, then you know, you love Paul. But it, you're not loving Paul any less by going, what did I want to do with my life? What were we going to do? Were we going to, you know, maybe we wanted to try, maybe we traveled to Denver this past summer for the OCD conference and that was great and I got support and whatever, but maybe we also want to do some travel that has nothing to do with OCD because we've earned some self-care. We've earned a break. Yeah. We want to go or we want to visit family on the East Coast or we want to go you know, explore the world, especially now that it's a little easier to travel, a little expensive, a lot expensive, but... <laughs> Yeah. You know, maybe want to get out a little more and and remembering what do you like to do? Did you used to play cards with, with friends in the neighborhood? Why don't you have a card night? Oh, it would really send Paul into a spiral. Well, you know what? We need to be able to live our life. And that models for Paul that it's okay for Paul to live his life too. And he can have a dream outside of making it through this hour afraid that he's not causing catastrophic harm to something or someone. And instead he can start to go, what did I want to do? When I was little, I really liked video games. Maybe I want to program them. Maybe I want to learn about something. You know, whatever. Yeah. The sky is the limit, really. And and not forgetting, you know, it's okay. It's okay. Our value can be that I want to be able to go to Hawaii this summer. And I still love Paul. That doesn't take away from loving Paul. It's going to help me love Paul more when I come back I, with a tan and, you know, <laughs> haven't been at a luau. I mean, I'm going <laughs> to, yeah. things will be better. They will. Yeah. So, you know, having that break, having that self-care, giving yourself freedom to live and not just for the symptomology, but because there's things past the symptomology that matter. And we want to be able to celebrate that. And we want to be able to move toward that. So I think that's a really good point, Ben. And I, I, I like that you brought that up. We, we, you know, we've mentioned that before, too, in talking about whether it's young children, adult children, spouses, we just we need to be able to take care of ourselves and recharge ourselves. And so having not only recharge moments, but things that we want to pursue. Maybe it's maybe it's an adult that wanted to go to college, but they were too debilitated. They're still, you know, mid-20s or 30s or 40s, whatever. And they say, well, I still want to go to college. They could go to the college. That's not out of reach. Yep. It's not out of reach. And so, you know, it may feel like, whoa, you don't know where we are right now. Like, there's no way. But if that's the goal, that's the perfect kind of goal to go, hey, how am I going to let this now then be the, the focus of things that we are looking 
for and looking toward instead of, oh, but if we go, if we go to grandma's that week, we won't be here. And what if he gets upset? You know, let that be the goal. Yeah. College. You could do that. We got some work to do. We're always doing, we're doing the work anyway, whether it's going forward or not, we're working hard. So, so yeah, have that, have that dream, have those values, lean into that. And I think that's a really great reminder of not letting your life become about symptom reduction. But remember why you want to function. What are you working towards? What are you looking forward to? You can still do that. You're never too old to dream. Yep. You're never too old to get started. We're not, all of us, we don't know whether we have a day or a hundred days or a hundred years. So let's get to dreaming and we definitely won't get any of it done if we don't try. So (laughs) it's worth it. Yeah. Well, Ben, this has been fantastic. So you are working on the East Coast. You're going to be presenting at the conference and it sounds like you're at the in-person conferences a lot. So are you planning on going to San Francisco? I am. Yes, I We'll definitely be there. Yeah. So San Francisco, they're going to have an in-person conference probably next July. It probably is already has the date, but I can, I will put a link to IOCDF on that because those are really great conferences. If you're an adult parent that wants to participate in a group like this, and also there is that virtual group that you can tune into. Love that you're going to be with those moms talking about their experience, their lived experience, and with Ellie Leibowitz and that just sounds like a dynamic panel. So they can catch you at the IOCDF virtual conference in November, just around the corner here. Yep. 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 So, you know, have your happy Halloween. Join up at the end of the week in the conference. I think that could sound like a, that sounds like a treat. Not a trick, but it's a treat. <laughs> so I, I look forward to continuing to see kind of where support continues to grow. And like these moms are a perfect example of you don't have to have gone to school or be a professional or be Ellie Leibowitz to make a difference. You can say like, hey, this is hard and we're going to talk about it. And then other people can realize they can talk about it, too. This could be you. So this is this is amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule and would love to keep in touch. Maybe I'll see you in San Francisco. I'm hoping to also be in attendance, perhaps submit yeah, something to awesome. talk. But yeah, that it, it's been a pleasure. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for that. For this week's application piece, I just wanted to highlight some of the amazing upcoming resources that offer extra helpings of support for you, the amazing OCD family community. First off, as Ben and I chatted about, the IOCDF virtual conference is coming November 4th through 6th, 2022, and this conference is available worldwide. It's an amazing opportunity to get connected with other families, Whether parents of adult children, like we talked about today, young children, partners or spouses, clinicians, researchers, everybody, I'm going to be linking directly to IOCDF's virtual conference event from this episode's blog post on OCDFamilyPodcast.com. But you can also hop on over to IOCDF.org, which is the International OCD Foundation, again, for anybody who's new to the family gathering. And you can easily navigate once you're at IOCDF.org around to find out more info about the conference, how to register, as well as the wealth of resources there. It's $100, I believe, for family and support communities, as well as for OCD and OCD-related sufferers. And 
You have access to the entire catalog of talks and trainings for up to 30 days. I want to say it's up to 30 days. So that is pretty cool. If you happen to already be a member of IOCDF.org, I believe you can get a 15% discount on that. So that's going to be $85. But even if you're not, this is a great resource. Some of you may be paying more out of pocket for therapy sessions or coinsurance or deductibles or just cash pay than the cost of this three-day conference. And it's such a great resource for anyone impacted or longing to learn more about OCD and OCD-related disorders. So I really, really highly recommend it. Also, if you sign up, keep an eye out for Ben, who will be presenting on Saturday, that's November 5th at 2.30 p.m., His talk is called Supporting Your Adult Child with OCD, Clinical and Family Perspectives, and he will be co-presenting with the one and only Ellie Leibowitz, founder of the SPACE program, as well as with, I believe, Susan A. Lane and Kathy Stocking, who are mama warriors that are co-facilitating that virtual support group that Ben was talking about earlier in the show. Ben was kind enough to send me the link where you can learn more about this virtual support group, and it looks like it meets twice a month, and it's free and open to family members or parents who live in the U.S. or Canada. Also, I would just say if you're outside of the U.S. or Canada and you're English-speaking, because I'm going to guess that the group is facilitated in English, and wonder, you know, could I still participate even if I'm not in the U.S. or Canada? Shoot them an email and see if that would work, because it may be something where there are, you know, certain demographic-specific issues that can come up, but I think the content of dealing with OCD in adult children would be helpful across the board. So, I'm going to say err on the side of ask and see if it could work for you as well, even if you're not within the U.S. or Canada. Also, to our OCD family community across the pond and beyond, the OCD UK conference is coming up and it looks like it's going to land about mid-November and it's virtual as well. There will be some familiar voices presenting. One that I just saw as trying to get a little more information was Reverend Katie O'Dunn. But I'm sure that there will be even more names and faces that we've gotten to know a little bit here in the OCD family community. Also, there's a talk that I think looks really, really dynamic and pertinent for this specific population, and that's family members and friends that support someone who has OCD. It's listed as a support group, but it also looked like a training opportunity or an opportunity at the very least for resources. So that is falling on Friday, the 18th of November. It looks like it's falling at 6.30 p.m. during the UK conference. And essentially, this sounds really akin to what Ben was talking to us about in terms of what he facilitates at the in-person conferences here in the United States for IOCDF. There are a number of other resources as well that I've seen, especially through social media. I've seen as a friend of the OCD Family podcast on Facebook, OCD UK updating and giving different information about talks that will be happening. You can also go to OCDUK.org and they will be updating, it looks like in the next couple of weeks, more and more information about this year's conference. But what I will say, I was perusing OCDUK.org because we do have loyal family there in the UK that is listening with us and new downloads every week. And what I will say is I noticed that 2020 and 2021 were virtual conferences as well, especially with COVID. And that you can go back and watch old presentations, watch old conference content, and it's absolutely free. 
So I I saw that and thought, oh my gosh, that's that's an amazing resource that you can go back and check out old conference content from the last two years, and it's it, it could still be very, very helpful. And if OCD UK happens to hear this and wants to shoot me some more information, I can always send out a tweet or, you know, a ticky talk, something, all the social medias that <laughs> that I'm trying that I fumble through when I'm when I'm sharing information but I would be happy to share more information about the virtual conference that's coming up so check out ocduk.org they've been working hard to expand their virtual trainings and it looks like they you know just even recently were able to expand into Scotland so it sounds like they're doing a lot of really dynamic work and it's a great resource to check out, and I highly recommend looking into that in addition to the IOCDF virtual conference that is happening here. It's all in November, y'all. It's an exciting November. Also, whether you hit up Ben and his crew at this year's conference or not, you know I'm here for y'all, okay? So I will be linking to IOCDF's website where you can get all the details on Susan and Kathy's virtual support group because I think that's going to be really important. So whether you go to the conference and hear about it or not, I want you to be able to access that if it's something you're interested in. Again, totally free. Lastly, speaking of November, I am so excited to share that I will be running a five-week series here on OCD Family Podcast about OCD-related disorders, and that is starting next week. Yes, it is. I am super, super psyched. I am running this all through the month of November, and first up next week is going to be on body-focused repetitive behaviors, otherwise known as BFRBs, and that includes everything from hair pulling, skin picking, lip biting, nail tearing, to so much more. And that will be with Dr. Suzanne Mouton Odom. So we are going to be talking with Suzanne. She is a wealth of knowledge. She's super down to earth and relatable and just really lovely. So as much as I'm hoping you'll check out the conference, you'll definitely want to keep an ear out for my chat with Suzanne about BFRBs next week. So have a happy Halloween for all that enjoy participating and taking part in those festivities. I know my kids are psyched. The force is also strong with my brood this year, and my son Jack is already anticipating how he can fight back his OCD with a lightsaber. So, you know, more power to you, or force, I guess I should say. Also, Diwali just passed, and we hope all our OCD fam who celebrate and partake in Diwali had a safe and happy holiday. And with that, that's a wrap for us, y'all. So I'll see you next week with Suzanne to chat all things BFRBs because there's always a seat at the table available for you. Bye, guys. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit ocdfamilypodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the demo on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family like adult children stuck in their feelings. That's right, I went there. And you can too at ocdfamilypodcast.com.